We started this last week. We're going to finish it this week. And so if you have God's Word with you, let's go to the first psalm. And if you remember last week, I kind of shared some thoughts with you about it. I said, first of all, that Psalm 1 is a foundational psalm. Everything that comes from Psalm 2 onward kind of is tied to Psalm 1. So it begins the foundation for us. And of course, the psalms are psalms of praise, right? Uh, There's some instruction, obviously, in there. There's some challenges in there. There's all kinds of wonderful truths in psalms. But primarily, when you want to praise the Lord, when you're in the dumps, when you're uh, depressed, when you're in the wilderness, when you're struggling, we talked in Sunday school class about sometimes just being down a little bit. When you're down a little bit, the best place to go is the Psalms, right? And everything builds off Psalm 1, okay? And I I mentioned also to you, at least I tried to last week to to mention to you, that Psalm 1 is really a psalm of contrast, okay? It's a contrast from the philosophy of the world on the one hand to the principles of the Word of God on the other hand. And then I said to you this, that there's something Psalm 1 does for us. Whether we like it or not, whether we want to or not, Psalm 1 forces us to determine where we are positionally with God before we can ever deal in practical areas of our life. And so last week as we began to to unfold it, as we began to talk about the contrast in the psalm, my main thought to you, or my main affirmation to you was, you, this psalm won't leave you alone. If you're going to read it and study it or hear a preacher teach or preach from it, it forces you to determine whether you're a blessed man or whether you're a wicked man. It shows the contrast between that blessed man. And we said last week that the blessed man was a man who had God at the center of his life, a man who had been declared justified, declared righteous by God. And God was involved in his life as opposed to the wicked man. And the wicked man may not be a bad guy, but he's someone who's void of God in his life. And that's what the psalmist is trying to build this great contrast with, a God-centered man redeemed by God. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning as opposed to someone who could be a good daddy, uh, an honest businessman, uh, a good grandpa, all of those kind of things, but there is no God in his life. And because there is no God in his life, the Bible describes him as wicked. Now, you've got to come to terms with that because you know and I know great dads. You know and I know great mothers, and they're good people, and they're kind of people that really make our country good, a nation of good people, but because God's not there, because they don't look to God for their decisions, and they don't look to God for their direction, the Bible describes them as wicked. And let me, you know, gang, this morning, if you're not sure that you're born again, 
If you're not absolutely sure that God has justified you by grace through faith, if you're not absolutely sure that if you died today that you would go to be with the Lord in heaven, then with a softness and, and love in my heart, I want to say to you that the Bible says you're wicked because you don't have God in your life. Heavy stuff, I understand, but it's truth from God. And the fact is, you know whether you're really saved or not, okay? Uh, I may not know. I don't know your life. I don't know what goes on inside the heart. But God knows, first of all. But if you're serious, you know whether you're really saved or not. Now, before we take another bite and finish up the psalm, I want to reemphasize something that, that I, I mentioned last week. I mentioned kind of toward the closing of last week, and, and I'm not sure I was just real clear, okay? I've been known to muddy up the water a little bit. And so this week, as I went back through it and studied it, I thought, you know, Tom, it might be good that before we dig right in, talk about conduct, the practical part of the, the, a person's Christian's life, then maybe I, I need to go back and, and kind of revisit what I closed with last week, okay? I think, gang, I think sometimes we get the cart before the horse spiritually, okay? Now, now listen to me, okay? As a person receives conviction of the Holy Spirit, when things begin to happen inside of you and you feel the pressure of the conviction of sin in your life, at first, you may interpret that as, as a sign to get your act together. Now, now, flow with me, okay? When God begins that work, that's a sovereign work of God bringing you to repentance, okay? But when it first begins to happen, you might at first interpret that, that, that God is telling you, you need to get your act together, or you need to clean your act up, or you need to change some things in your life. And then when you get that taken care of, then you can be worthy of salvation, or then you can be in a place where God might would be pleased to, to, to save you. And, and I want to tell you, I, I think we preachers, well-meaning as we are, I think sometimes in our challenges to you, sometimes it comes across that way. And so after last week, I wanted to be sure I didn't miss con or confuse you. That's wrong, okay? That's wrong. We call that reformation. Now, there's a place in your life for reformation, but you're not reformed in order to be saved. You're saved, and then God begins the reformation in your life, okay? Regeneration of the heart, which is a sovereign work of God's grace, must always precede reformation, or you'll never have any power to reform. Does that make sense? In other words, you get this idea, man, I need to quit whatever, or I need to start whatever. Man, I'm not worthy of salvation, so when I take a good spiritual bath and I clean my act up, then when I reform, then I can be regenerated. And we get it backwards. The fact of the matter is, genera regeneration must come first. And when a person is regenerated or redeemed, or saved, or born again, or whatever you want to call it. 
When that be, happens in their life, then and only then can a life begin to change because there's no power any other way, okay? So it's receiving Christ, it's being born of the Spirit that gives you the power to change your life, okay? Now, Psalm 1, we started in verse 6 last week, and I, I said that Psalm 1 teaches us the way of the righteous that it is declared righteous, it's justification by faith, God declaring you righteous, and then the psalm begins to flesh that out on how once we're righteous by God, we can live. I, I want to read to you, I, I mentioned in the first service, I've got a lot of favorite authors. authors. Um, one that's becoming increasingly more of my, one of my favorites is R.C. Sproul. And I want to read to you something that he wrote it's amazing. I, I just, I don't know why God lets these people write like this. I mean, I'm a good guy. Why can't he let me write like this, you know? I mean, they write these books, they sell these books, and they do all this thinking, and then there's me. And uh, man, this is, listen to what he wrote anyway. The flesh makes no provision for the things of God, and grace is required for us to be able to choose them. The unregenerate man, that means the one who is not saved, okay? The unregenerate man must be regenerated. The regeneration means quickening of the heart, being brought to life. The Holy Spirit takes a dead, lost heart and generates life into that heart, okay? So he says, the unregenerate man must be regenerated before he has any desire for God. The spiritually dead person must be quickened by the Holy Spirit. Now again, we call that the effectual call of God, okay? And the effectual call of God that leads to regeneration is not an outward call that all hear. It's the inward call from God that births eternal life into them. L listen to me, this is important stuff, okay? The effectual call of God is not that time, perhaps, that preachers stand and proclaim the gospel into the ears of people, or a teacher might proclaim the gospel into the ears of many, or someone knocks on the door and makes a general call, oh, you need to be saved, we should do that, obviously. We should tell people you're a sinner and you're condemned to die. And that God loved you and the, he, he showed his love by giving his son upon the cross. And, and he died on the cross and he shed his blood for sin. That's the general call that goes out to everybody. That doesn't save you. That makes you aware of your condemnation. The effectual call that changes and quickens and makes alive a dead heart is that inward call. Maybe you've heard this message a hundred times. But on this particular day, with this particular pastor or preacher or teacher, or on this particular day when someone knocked on your door and told you about the cross and told you about yourself, on this particular day, something penetrated, something pierced your heart, something quickened you to spiritual life. That's regeneration. That's the effectual call of God. Now, when this takes place, 
And when only this takes place, can reformation of conduct take place? When that has already happened, now and only now can someone that deals in the practical areas begin to take root in your heart. Now, the reason I wanted to say that is because last week I thought maybe I confused a little bit, but not just that. Last week I said to you that I believe that our churches are filled with lost people. You remember that? That might have been offensive, and I didn't mean it to be that way. Uh, I, I said, actually, literally what I said last week is that the greatest challenge facing our churches today is unregenerate church members, lost members that are on the role of churches. And I didn't want to offend or, or, or even confuse, and so I wanted to deal with that before we look at some of the practical areas, okay? A lot of church members have this idea that if they do this or don't do that, then they're going to be okay or they're going to be saved. And that even, that even grows to the point of legalism. Now, now listen to me. That does not mean that we shouldn't have proper conduct. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't take God's word and, and, and share with you proper rules of a Christian's life and how a Christian should live. But it means that we have to get it in the right order. Legalism, which we seem to be good at at Baptists. You know, we, legalism, even well-intentioned as sometimes it is, we say, well, you can't smoke, or you can't drink, or you can't dance, or you can't do all these things, or there's no way you can be saved. Now, legalism, if it's man-manipulated without the power of the Holy Spirit, is wrong, okay? It's wrong. But when a preacher stands, when, 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 a, when a teacher stands, a Sunday school teacher stands, and he stands up in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he takes God's word and he says, Thus saith the Lord, and the enablement of the Holy Spirit is on his life, and he's sharing biblical truth. That's not legalism. That is biblical truth. Don't let legalism be a cop-out. When God's man takes God's word and shares God's truth and things begin to happen inside of your heart and your life, gang, that's conviction of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 1 ought to be deeply convicting to us in our actions of life if we're saved. Psalm 1 ought to be the, it's the foundational psalm, it ought to be the guideline to our life if we know Christ. That's not legalism. That's direction from God. Now, if we're not saved, Psalm 1 might help you in life, but it has no spiritual value. It has no eternal security or no eternal significance in your life. Are you with me on that? Does that make sense? <laughs> Thank you, one person got it. Yeah, yeah, okay. I just think it's important because we're so good about giving you rules and regulations, and sometimes those rules and regulations may be from God, and he may want you to change a little bit of your life. And if he does, it'll always be with regard to the, the statutes and the directions and the guidelines we find in Psalm 1, okay? All right, Psalm 1, let's stand in honor of God's word, and let me read it to you then and share what God wants this morning, okay? 
David's writing, and he says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor does he stand in the path of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Remember we said last week, the word of God, okay? And in his law, God's law, he meditates day and night. And because he does, verse 3, he's going to be like a tree that's firmly planted by streams of water. And this tree yields its fruit in its season. There's a season for fruit. There's a season not for fruit, okay? And you have to be aware of that. Let me get, let me, I know you guys have stood up a lot today, but let me just chase a rabbit. I, I went out into the backyard. We got two plum trees. And, uh, and we haven't had plums in two years. And I went out the other day, and I got to looking at our plum trees. I came back and said, oh, mother load this year, you know? I don't know what happened in the seasons in the past, but I don't tell you, unless the bugs or a storm or deer or something comes, this is going to be the season for plums, Okay. Well, in your spiritual life, you're going to go through seasons. Not every season is going to be fruitful. Churches go through that. Have you noticed that? Sometimes our, our, our chairs are filled. Sometimes our chairs are empty, so empty we kind of echo, right? Why? Because there's seasons in the life of a church just like there's seasons in the life of a person. But this guy that's planted firmly is going to have seasons where there's fruit. His leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he, and I don't like the word prosper, mark it out. He is victorious. He succeeds, okay? And then he shifts, the contrast is in verse 4, the wicked are not so. They're like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked's not going to stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Now the righteous and the unrighteous are mixed together. There's going to come a day of judgment when all this separation occurs, and then he closes with where we were last week. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. Father, help me right now to communicate what you want me to communicate. And God, it's got to be in your power or we're wasting our time here. So Holy Spirit, please enable us to speak and enable us to hear. In Christ's name, amen. All right, thank you. Be seated, okay? Now, let me begin by asking you some questions, okay? How do we determine, or is there a way to determine whether we are regenerated and have new life or not? Okay? I think it's a valid question. If this psalm challenges every single one of us to determine whether we're really saved or not, then I think a legitimate question is, how do we determine that? Okay? How do we evaluate that? Is there something that we can look at and latch on to that would indicate that Steve or Stu or Chris or Tom is really saved? The answer is yes, and the psalmist gives it to us. And then at the end, he even does something more. He gives us a way to determine whether a person is really lost, okay? So let's talk about the blessed man. Look at verse 1 with me, okay? Three things in these first three verses I saw about the blessed man. Number one, he's courageous in life. Notice that David begins in a negative way 
by showing us that the blessed man lives a life of obedience by not doing some things. Gang, very important. A saved man is a man that you can look at and you can see that his life is lived in obedience to God, and it's lived in obedience to God by some of the things, according to David, first of all, that he does not do. He follows God's rules, not the world's rules. And if you'll notice, he gives us three steps of sinful progression, okay? The, the, the blessed man does not do these things is what he's saying. In a general sense, he's saying he's careful where he goes. He's careful who he goes with. He's careful who he listens to. He's careful the way he thinks. He's careful how he lives his life. Not because of legalism, but because there's a courageousness in his life that he's going to live his life outside of peer pressure. I don't care what they do. I'm not going to do this. I don't care where they go. I'm not going to go there. I don't care how they act. I don't care about their worldview. I'm going to live my life courageously because God has shown me how I'm to live. Now notice in these verses what happens. He says, first of all, the blessed man is not impressed with the world's ideal, ideals or ideas, I guess. Okay, It's a lost philosophy. In fact, in this psalm, four times the word wicked is used, and it's a word for lost, okay? What you get from the world is confusion. What you get from the world is chaos. You don't get anything from God from the world, and so this blessed man, this godly man, this saved man, first of all, is not impressed by the world and the world's values. In addition to that, this blessed man is not induced by the world. He does not move. The word is a, a, a moving word. He does not move toward what he hears. He's not attracted by the world to the point of movement. And then he says the blessed man is not impacted by the world. He doesn't wedge himself in. He's not locked into the world system. You see, a, a wicked person according to Romans 1, can become so engulfed in wickedness that he's turned over to wickedness, and he's beyond the point of salvation. And so David, first of all, tells us that the blessed man is a courageous man. He has set some standards for his life. He has, he has placed some values for his life, and he's not going to be blown around by every fad blown around by every wind, blown around by every feeling or passion or desire that comes down the tube, okay? The second thing he tells us, not just courageous in his life, but verse 2 tells us that he's got confidence in life. Look at verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law he meditates day and night. Instead of getting his information from Saturday Night Live, the man of God gets his information from the Word of God. And the Bible says he delights in the Word and he meditates on the Word, which means he appreciates God's Word and then he appropriates God's Word. I want to tell you, dear Christian, 
One of the greatest challenges I think you have is not perhaps the reading of the Word or perhaps even the understanding of the Word. I think the greatest challenge we face as Christians is what we read and understand and then apply to our life. If we don't take God's Word and if we don't apply God's Word, appropriate God's Word, we don't meditate on it and think about it and chew on it, and then build it into our life, it's nothing's going to happen good for us. Why should it happen? It's amazing to me, the people that come in to see me, and they sit down in front of me, and they're having trouble in life, and we begin to talk about life, and, and, and they say they know the Lord, and, and I begin to give scriptures, and their life is just totally radically different from what the scriptures say, and they never change. They go right back to it and do the... Same old things in the same old way, expecting different results. Gang, listen, I'm not a rocket scientist, but that don't make sense to me. You know, if 2 plus 2 equals 4, why should I say 2 plus 2 equals 5? It just doesn't work that way. And the psalmist here says, listen, it's not the world where he gets his direction. It's the Word. And as long as he stays within the circle of the Word then things work out for him. Let me give you a, a, perhaps the best biblical example, okay? One of my favorite Bible characters is Joshua. And as you know, Joshua was the understudy of Moses. And when Moses dies, it's turned over to him. Now, you got to picture what's going on in Joshua chapter 1. He's up kind of on a little mound, I think. And he looks out over the Jordan River and gang, he sees the enemies of God. Now, the enemies of God are strong. They were called giants just a few years prior. They had places to live. They had castles to live in. They, uh, they were mean. They were strong. They were, they were tough guys. And so here's Joshua, who all these years had followed after Moses, and he looks and he sees the good, the bad, the bad and the ugly, you know? And he thinks, oh. This ain't good. And so he looks over his back, and there's how many? Five million? Three, five million? And listen, they're not military people. They think they are. They're not. They're, they're, they're Baptists because all they did was complain. They never had enough food, you know, never had enough water, you know. And so he looks over there, and he goes, and he sees the enemy. He said, uh-oh, this ain't good. He turns around, and he says, this ain't good, you know. I can see Joshua trembling. You know, he's just, oh, me. What are we going to do? And the Bible says that, that the Lord came to him, and here's what the Lord said. I, I just wish I was there. Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. Get up and go forward. And then he says this to him, do, oh, three times he says, be strong and courageous, okay? Be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, because he probably was struggling there. Then God says, Joshua, do what the law says. Don't deviate to the right or the left. Moses, do what the word says. Don't let it depart from your mouth. Same in fact, maybe, maybe this is a, the psalmist is looking back. 
Meditate on it, he says, day and night. And the reason you should do that is so that you can do everything that's written in it. And if you do what's written in it, you will prosper. I don't like that word, mark it out. You'll be victorious. You'll succeed. And so we have God telling Joshua, I understand you got a battle here. You got some guys there and you got some folks back here. Go forward. But you got to go forward with the Word of God. And if you go forward with the Word of God, Joshua, you're going to make it. Oh, dear people of God, may I say to you today, forget the world. A godly man doesn't do some things, doesn't go some places, doesn't sit down at some places. A godly man takes the Word of God, saturates himself in the Word of God, and he marches forward for the glory of God. He's a man who has courage in life. He's outside the peer pressure. We were, let me just tell you, uh, Wednesday night we were finishing up, Chris was teaching, finishing up Galatians 6, 6, wasn't it? And a phrase hit me that just floored me. Paul, he's in prison, he's dying, getting ready to, well, he'll get out and then he'll die for the Lord. And he makes this statement, he said, that he had learned to be crucified to the world and the world to him. And I said to our class, that's an amazing statement. That Paul could get to the place in his life where he was outside of the pressures of the world. Well, that's what the psalmist is saying here. A man of God, a God-centered man is a man of courage and a man of confidence. And then verse 3, he's also a man who's complete in life. Look at, look at verse 3, okay? Here's what he says. This God-blessed man will have stability and productivity and maturity in his life. He'll, he'll succeed. He'll be prosperous. I don't like that word. Mark it out. He'll be victorious in his life. Now, not the things of the world necessarily, but the things of God, which is far greater, okay? The phrase, firmly planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season, leaf not withering, are all signs that God is sovereign, not just in life because we know that, but that God is sovereign in his life. Gang, all of us recognize that God is sovereign. You don't plant yourself. God plants you. Isn't that right? So we all recognize that God is sovereign. Someone said in blessing, I had breath to breathe a new day. That's because the sovereign God gave you air to breathe. We know that. The godly man knows that God is sovereign in his life. It's personal. It's subjective. It's inside. He knows the way of the righteous is a declared righteous by, not righteousness by God. And it is God that produces the stability, the vitality, and the durability of life. Let me give you a couple of verses quickly. Job 34, 21. God's eyes are upon the ways of man, and he sees all of his steps. Gang, I want you to know, listen, hear me. Where you are in life right now, God knows. Where you are in life right now, God sees. You can't, you can fool a preacher. Deacons do it all the time. But you can't fool God. Okay? 
Another verse, I gave this one to you last week, but it's a different translation. If you do what the Lord wants, he will make certain each step you take is sure. And so we see that the blessed man is courageous, the blessed man is confident, and the blessed man is complete, all according to grace. Okay? Well, let me wrap it up. Uh, for a moment, let's talk about the, the God void man. Okay? Look at verse 4 and 5 with me. Okay? You can read it as I talk. Okay? David tells us two things about the wicked man. Number one, he has no stability. Uh, back in those days, they would go on a hill, they would take the grain, they would throw the grain up, and the wind would blow the, the waste or the chaff away, and only the grain would fall. And that's the picture that he's given to us here. Grain thrown into the air like chaff blown away, so is the godless man in his life, the void, God-void man in his life. Now listen, it's more than being empty. The idea here is that he is nothing. And I want you to understand the loud voices of our world today, the voices that we see and the voices that we hear, the voices that are trying to shape our culture, the voices that are trying to change our kids' way of thinking and their values, the Bible says, are nothing. Do you hear me? Most of what you're inundated with on TV, most of what your kids will be inundated with in school, not because of our godly teachers, but because of a system that is opposed. Let me be careful. I don't want any, I don't want any teachers beating me up after church, okay? Uh, because of a system that's categorically, diametrically opposed to the things of God. They're the ones, they, they, Hollywood has said that if we can change the minds of the kids, we've got them. And they've been doing it systematically over the last 30 or 40 years, you see. That's one reason I think homeschooling is wonderful if you can do it. Another reason why I think Christian schools are incredibly valuable if you can afford it, okay? But they're nothing, the Bible says. It's not just that they're empty. They're nothing. They're void. And then he says, ultimately, not only uh, that, but the, there'll be no standing. There's going to be a separation before the blessed and the wicked. At judgment, they're going to fall, and they're going to be cast away. Cast away from God. Cast away from the presence of those who are godly. Now, let me close it up and ask you a few questions. Who do you want to run with, gang? Huh? Who do you want to run with? By the way, come back up. If you're a teacher, God bless you. If you're a teacher in public school, God bless you. Amen? Hey, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how our teachers do what they do the way they do it in the system that they're involved in. I just, I, I'm th I pray for you. I, I thank God almost every week for our teachers because that's the saving grace of our school system because they're sure not going to get it through the educational system. They're going to have their lives changed because of godly teachers, and we need more of them. I, I don't know why I said that, but I probably get me out of trouble, okay? All right. Um, who do you want to run with? Who do you want to spend eternity with? What kind of value system do you want your kids to grow up under? I want to read to you something. Um, I mentioned R.C. Sproul earlier. Another one of my favorite authors today and favorite preachers today is a guy by the name of John Piper. You probably may have never heard of John Piper. 
But when I was studying through the psalm, I, I felt this pressure of last week that, man, I hope I didn't come across legalistic or maybe I didn't want to confuse this legalism thing because I just think if, if, if we do that, we miss the beauty of the relationship and beauty of the joy of servant. We ought to want to serve God. We ought to be excited about being godly because of what he has done. And so I, I, I read something Piper wrote, and I feel like it'll be a pretty good fitting for us. Okay, here's what he said. He said, never reduce Christianity to a matter of demands and resolutions and willpower. Now listen to what he said. It's a matter of what we love. It's a matter of what we delight in. It's a matter of what tastes good to us. When Jesus came into the world, humanity was split in two, split according to what they love. You know, the Bible says light came, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The righteous and the wicked are separated by what they delight in, whether it be the revelation of God, the word of God, or the way of the world. I love that. I love that. All I, for a lot of my ministry, I think well-intentioned, I've tried to put pressure on people to conform to a way of life when I've since realized that the Holy Spirit doesn't need me to do that. The Holy Spirit is capable of that, but I need to be sure that I preach God's Word with the enablement of the Holy Spirit so that God can do that. Does it, you understand the difference? And I don't want to manipulate you guys, but I sure want to challenge you with God's Word through the Holy Spirit and so the, I loved what Piper said. The righteous and the wicked are separated by what they delight in. What do you delight in today, you know? The final analysis, Psalm 1, which I think I said to you, is kind of, I think, even the foundation of what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, okay, shows us, as the Sermon on the Mount, that we have two alternatives, and we have two destinies, Okay, here's how Jesus said it. The house of rock or the house of sand. A good tree that bears good fruit or a bad tree that produces bad fruit. Produces fruit now, but it's bad fruit. The narrow way that leads to life that few are on or the broad way that leads to death that many are on. You know, Jesus cut it pretty straight, didn't he? He said the way to heaven is a narrow way that few get on. The way to hell is a broad way that most are on. It all boils down to the way that you're on. Psalm 1, Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. David, Jesus, all said the same thing. And so let's ask ourselves, which way are we on here? Let's determine, am I blessed? Or am I God? Am I God-centered or am I God-void? And then if God is convicting there, if God is challenging you there, then let it be conviction. It's not me, okay? It must be God. And if it's God, then that's where the delight of salvation comes. That's the joy of following after. Not because a preacher says you got to, but there's something in the heart that makes you want to. Does that make sense to you guys? Does it?
I hope so. Let's pray. We're going to take a moment after I pray for just a, a time, perhaps, if God has spoken to your heart or if you have a decision you need to make, whatever.